This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Top Network. I'm Sonia Russo. This is the second part of our two-part series on legal technology innovation. The first episode is definitely worth a listen to. In this episode, we talk to Hima Lochin, a 2021 graduate of Fordham University School of Law. She won third place in the ABA Young Lawyers Division's Legal Tech Fictional Writing Competition with her short story, Failed Us, which explores the unintended consequences of the use of artificial intelligence and predictive algorithms in the criminal justice system, particularly for people of color. She also did a reading of her work for us during this episode. I loved her story, which I found to be incredibly relevant to my own work as a prosecutor and to my life as a woman of color. Here's Hema reading her story, Failed Us. Melanie was so frustrated that her hands started to shake, causing the coffee to spurt out of the small opening at the top of her to-go cup. Luckily, none of it landed on her. Are you serious right now? She said to no one in particular who could understand her, but her anger was directed at the small scanner right in front of her. No attorney detected. An emotionless voice announced once again, for what felt like the hundredth time. Hey, you want me to help? Melanie turned around and Jason Smith was walking through the door. He was dressed in his Giorgio Armani suit that he constantly made sure everyone knew was Giorgio Armani. He stood next to Melanie and the blue light of the scanner moved down his face. Attorney detected. Melanie heard the click of the small turnstile unlock. Jason turned to Melanie with a smirk. You can just go in with me if you want, Mel. That was the last thing on earth Melanie wanted to do and she hated when Jason called her Mel. He never asked if it was alright to shorten her name. He just started doing it. For a brief second, Melanie contemplated accidentally spilling her coffee on his Armani suit, but took a deep inhale and refrained. It's fine, I'll just take the civilian entrance. Again. I don't understand why this keeps happening to you. It's probably all of that makeup. I keep telling you, Mel, you don't need to wear so much. Maybe then the scanners would start recognizing you. Melanie hurried away before she flung the coffee cup at Jason's head. Of course, Jason wouldn't understand. He had more issues of his suit not being detected as designer than him not being detected as a person. As Melanie exited the building to walk around to the general entrance that had a human staff security station, she started to have flashbacks of taking the bar exam. She remembered looking into her bathroom mirror and applying a thin layer of baby powder on her face before walking into her room and logging into her computer. Just pat it on your face so it raises your skin tone just a little, her mentor had told her. In 2021, during the prolonged midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the bar exam was officially moved online, which annoyed Melanie to no end. She was one of the students at her school advocating for the bar exam to be abolished altogether, but it seemed to go through one ear and out the other of the bar exam administrators. Even though it was made remote a few years ago, it still had many technical issues that still hadn't been worked out despite numerous complaints by law students, professors, and recent graduates, mostly those of color. Melanie's mentor, who is also a black woman, failed her first attempt because the online server could not detect darker skin tones, and so she was marked as absent and could not be admitted to take the test. 
Melanie passed the bar exam on her first try, but was not a fan of facial recognition technology ever since. When she found out that the court she worked in was switching to scanners to admit attorneys, she went out and bought foundation that was two shades lighter, just because she knew it was going to happen again. But makeup was expensive, especially on a public defender salary, and she ran out of it a few days ago, when the scanner started to give her problems. She even tried to compensate with different types of makeup, but it still would not recognize her and let her in. But it had no issue with Jason, a white man, who constantly strolled in. Why did we need to install these scanners? She had asked one of the court clerks during the first few weeks of the new transition. It makes this more efficient, was their reply. Melanie thought to herself, efficient only for certain people. <sighs> Just like the law. Melanie mumbled under her breath. I'm sorry, did you say something, miss? <gasps> oh, no, sorry, it, it was nothing. Melanie had gotten so lost in her thoughts, she didn't realize she had been on autopilot and joined the line to get scanned for entry. Melanie, what are you doing here again? Miss Attorney, this entrance isn't for you. Benny, the security guard, teased. Melanie smiled. <laughs> I just wanted to say hi to my favorite officer. Hi, Carol she said, leaning over to Benny's partner. All three of them started to laugh. Have a nice day, you two, Melanie said as she scurried off to the waiting area to meet her client. Stay out of trouble, Miss Attorney. Melanie light jogged into the hallway where clients were waiting. Mr. Jones, so sorry I'm late. No worries, Melanie. Mr. Jones smiled and slowly got up. He was an elderly man who wore both his worries and joys in his eyes. Melanie waved weakly at the probation officer. Mr. Jones, let's go into one of these rooms and speak. Melanie tried to find an empty room. She accidentally walked in to a room with Jason and one of his clients. Jason looked flustered reading through documents and his client looked annoyed. Melanie never understood how or why he chose to become a public defender. They went into another one of the empty dim-lit rooms that only had one chair. Mr. Jones looked up at Melanie and gestured towards the chair. Oh no, Mr. Jones, please sit. I'm fine. I have my coffee. That's all I need. Well, if you insist. Mr. Jones sat gingerly down on the chair. How are you doing, Mr. Jones? Honestly, Melanie, I just want to get this over with. I want to get my time over with. Time? Mr. Jones, you shouldn't be getting time. You accidentally used someone else's credit card. That's it. You may have to pay a fine, but that doesn't warrant jail time. Do you think the judge will think so? Melanie paused. Judge Wilkins, who was assigned to their case, was her least favorite judge, and Melanie's track record with him was less than ideal. Most of her clients were men of color, which Judge Wilkins did not seem sympathetic to at all. But this elderly man accidentally using a credit card that he found for groceries could no way get turned into jail time, even if he was black. It wasn't possible. Any reasonable person could see that. Melanie was hopeful she'd also be able to waive any financial penalties and give Mr. Jones peace of mind. Six months. Melanie could hardly believe what Judge Wilkins had said. So it is ordered. What? How? Melanie stuttered. I had my clerk upload Mr. Jones's data to our new program, and six months was the correct sentence. Correct sentence? New program? 
Melanie's brain was still processing. Judge Wilkins nodded to the notice that was on the form table near the court reporter's desk. It read, As of December 10th, 2023, sentences will be determined by sentencing, a new program backed by artificial intelligence that delivers unbiased calculations of sentences for misdemeanors and felony charges. What data? Melanie asked, looking up from the notice. Excuse me? What data regarding Mr. Jones was uploaded? Melanie could not help the fact that her voice rose. She was trying everything possible to stay composed. She already knew the answer to her question, but wanted to hear it from the judge. I do not know what you are suggesting, but this program is unbiased and predicts probability of repeating offenses and uses a multitude of demographic data and previous court decisions. You should be happy this new program is so equitable, and you should think twice before you raise your voice in my courtroom again. Court is in recess. Please get out. Melanie bit her tongue and shifted focus to Mr. Jones, who she could barely look in the eyes. But when she did, she saw him smiling at her. You didn't fail us, Melanie. They did. You did what you could. The officer escorted him out. Melanie went numb and walked into the restroom to splash water on her face. Sentencing. She felt anger. How could people just blindly trust this program? Didn't they see how it just continued the already biased patterns of court decisions? Melanie had no doubt that if Mr. Jones was white or came from a wealthier background, jail time would have never been considered. To some people, AI is efficient, but to Melanie, AI was just as bad as racist judges. No, it was worse, because AI could claim to be unbiased. It wasn't. Melanie exited the restroom just as Benny was walking by. Miss Attorney, are you all right? Melanie looked up at Benny with Mr. Jones's word playing over in her mind. They failed us, she said, shaking her head. They failed us. Coming up, we'll talk with Hema about her story and the potential pitfalls for predictive algorithms in the criminal justice system. But before we get into that, here's a quick message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back, listeners. 
Here's my interview with Hema Lochin about her short story, Failed Us. Your short story won third place in the YLD's legal tech fictional writing competition for this year. I loved your story, and I thought it had some really fascinating themes. To start with, give us a summary of what your story is about. Sure. And also, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I feel oftentimes in in law school, um, creative writing isn't really something that we do. So um, definitely appreciate you saying that. But I think in essence, some of the main themes that I was thinking about when writing my short story is, well, racial disparities in the court system, even, even within how lawyers of color are treated and attorneys of color are treated in the courtroom. And especially because this writing competition was technology focused, the sort of catch-22 when we use technology, because sometimes we think technology can be completely unbiased, but when technology is programmed with human data that is open to biases, we can kind of fall down a rabbit hole there. So I had a lot of ideas that floated through as I was writing it, and as the story came together, it all kind of pulled through. So that was actually one thing that was really interesting to me in your story was, was to me as I was reading it, the implication that an artificial intelligence system was being used to determine sentences in part to avoid any potential inappropriate bias such as racism on the part of the sentencing judge. In the end, the system in your story imposed a disproportionate sentence on a person of color. Is that a concern that you have in the criminal justice system in general? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we're also at a very important stage, I think, in terms of where we are as a country, the conversations we're, we're starting to have. We're finally recognizing anti-racism as, as something that we should center conversations on, especially conversations regarding the law. Sometimes artificial intelligence seems as this untouchable subject. And I don't also don't want to go through a, like a sci-fi tangent. Um, I know there's a lot of fear with artificial intelligence too. But at the end of the day, when we boil it back down and think of how technology and AI can be designed, it's through coding. And who does the coding at the end of the day? The codes themselves, the algorithms themselves are done by humans and humans have potential to have biases that are unchecked. We talk about implicit bias all the time within the law, at least in my spaces and in, in my classes that I'm currently in, we talk about implicit bias a lot. So it definitely is a fear. It is a fear that if judges use AI to create sentences for anyone, but they're using data that has been predetermined by past decisions that have disproportionately affected people of color, then it would just be something by another name. Even if we use AI, if we still use that data that's flawed, the sentence itself will be flawed. And I think that's sort of what, what was highlighted in the story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that you just mentioned was that, you know, your story is in part about, you know, racial disparities in the law, um, particularly in the criminal justice system. And I guess I'm curious, is that general topic, racial disparity, but also implicit bias, also, you know, what lawyers of color experience in the courtroom. How did that kind of get on your radar? Is that something that you've experienced yourself maybe in summer internships or in other parts of, you know, maybe your life before you went to law school? Or was it some other kind of experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think in a way it is 
like just hearing your question, it definitely has been something that I experienced before coming to law school, but I never actually unpacked it until sitting in law school and actually having those conversations and reflecting back of, oh, wow, this is why, you know, my dad was targeted at the airport and these random checks or, oh, this is why I see so many police cruisers in my neighborhood, but not when I visit neighborhoods of my friends in more wealthier neighborhoods, right? I think all of these things, and we talk about implicit biases all the time. All of these things were things that I was perceiving, but not processing because I didn't have the vocabulary or the sort of systemic knowledge to process it, which all kind of happened in law school. But during my first summer, I did a family defense internship and a sort of what family defense is, is representing parents trying to reunify with their children in court. Uh, a lot of these are quote unquote abuse and neglect cases. Um, sometimes we also see some of the cases have a lot to do with race sometimes um, and class. I think class is a huge thing. One of my supervisors often told a story that she comes from a more wealthy neighborhood upbringing. When she picked up her child, she had a stain on her shirt. No one said anything, but she had a case where a mother had stains all over her shirt and her child was taken away from her. So like there are a lot of disparities there um, and just in terms of experiences. But I think just going in court every day and seeing how sometimes mothers of color were treated very differently by judges than white mothers were. I think that stood out to me. I am a woman of color. I felt sometimes treated differently than a lot of the white attorneys. And my and um, our intern class was split. Two of us were interns of color, two of us weren't. And the way that the court clerks and the court marshals sort of treated us, I think, felt very different. Um, and it wasn't really until I started unpacking these biases and having these conversations about the legal field and sort of sometimes how when we learn in law school, we strip away things like race and class and gender. And it just makes me think that all of these things constantly play a role, even when we're not thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I was reading your story, that was, among other things, I mean, that was one thing that I identified kind of with the main protagonist on was, you know, this disparate treatment that I think sometimes folks of color do experience. And I'll be more specific that I think attorneys of color, or in this case, interns of color do experience in the courtroom. Um, and even going into the courthouse, I have had that experience where my my peace officer badge was scrutinized way more than my white male colleagues. So mm -hmm. I I thought that was really interesting that that was such a big part of of your piece, particularly the other character, the other lawyer Jason. in the story. Yeah, Jason. Jason. <laughs> yeah. Um, was <laughs> and, and you don't have to go into this too much, but was there like a real life inspiration for that? Because there were some real specific details in there. <laughs> I'm not going to say yes, but I'm also not going to say no. <laughs> I feel, to be honest, Jason is like a conglomerate of a lot of a lot of people I've interacted with within law school and the legal system in my internships. But yeah, there's definitely like for me, Jason was a very fun character to write because it was cathartic in a way, um, especially the scene where like my favorite thing in my story, honestly, is this 
is when she walks into the room and Jason is sort of fumbling and then it like goes back to the main character Melanie really connecting to her client and I think that's something that you know as a budding attorney of color I see as you know, I, f- I feel like law school hasn't shown me many of my strengths. And if, if anything, it shows me it sh- has shown me more imposter syndrome than strengths. But um, the fact that I am able to connect more to my clients in that sense, just because of some shared experience, um, makes me feel. And I felt like Melanie felt that too in her story, in her experience, um, that there is a strength there. There is sort of an empathy and connection there that I think I liked in that moment of the story. I think that's right. That was another thing that that stuck out to me when when I was reading your story. I guess, you know, shifting gears a, a little bit and because you talked about how fun it was to, you know, write Jason's character because I think <laughs> I think most of us probably who are who are women of color may or may not recognize <laughs> a couple of figures in their own lives like that. What motivated you to enter this competition? Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was on the job search and I have been looking into sort of the intersection between technology and the law, mostly just because in my, I'm currently a research assistant where I'm working with a professor. We're talking a lot about access to justice and technology and how potentially technology can bridge the access to justice gap or expand it depending on how it's used. And then I came across this writing competition and I saw that it was creative writing. And for a second, I had to reread the prompt because I was just, is this actually a creative writing contest within the law? Um, And I see myself first and foremost, not as a lawyer, not as a legal student, but as a storyteller. And I really just jumped at it. I I wrote the, actually, I wrote the story in two hours just because I had so much energy and excitement for it. And then I submitted it. And when I heard back that my story had gotten shortlisted, I was, I mean, I haven't written creatively in a very long time, but I was extremely thrilled that the story resonated with someone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it really did for sure. I mean, it resonated with me personally. Obviously, it resonated with the judges panel. And from what I understand, there were some pretty illustrious sort of figures in the legal community on that panel. Um, So it really was a wonderful story. I guess that prompts me to wonder, so so you have done, it sounds like, creative writing in the past. And, you know, I know law school is really tough because for some folks, it might feel like you don't have time or even the bandwidth to engage in creative endeavors. So how did that work for you in, in writing this story? Absolutely. And I wanted to echo that thought completely. Um, in a way, law school has felt very all-encompassing and the type of... Um, Not that legal writing is always dry, but nine times out of 10, legal writing can be dry. And I think, to be honest, writing this story made me feel like I was becoming a better lawyer because at the end of the day, whether or not you're in a courtroom, when you have a client, it's your job to tell the best story possible. Um, And I think as soon as I had an idea of Melanie's character and as soon as I sort of had that that moment where I I pictured her walking through the courtroom and just like not being recognized because so many of us as attorneys of color can feel invisible in these spaces in law school, in courtrooms, that it flowed. And I think it was so cathartic in a way because I I think creative writing and, and creativity in general is a way of processing, processing trauma, processing thoughts, processing 
complex emotions that for me personally have has been built up for three years, especially after this summer with the murder of George Floyd. That was just something that that has built up a lot. And I think that's also why my story had so many themes of racism and it's had so many layers of of racism, not, not even just with the sentencing, but just like the implicit racism of like Jason just shortening Melanie's name without, without even asking her all of those smaller things. Um, I think, I think goodness, creative writing was such an outlet and I was so glad to get back into it for a little bit. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but the role of facial recognition technology and its interaction with race was one theme of your story. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to write about that? So it sparked my memory of a lot of my friends who graduated last year. They were having a lot of anxiety with taking the bar exam. And I think there are some parts of my story that mention how the bar exam didn't recognize faces or recognize darker skin tones. Um, it also just made me remember that a lot of the fears within communities, especially communities that are are policed, have been more hesitant to use technology because of like these facial technologies. Because it, in a way, I like how in the story it says it's efficient, but only for some. Um, and I, I think sometimes when we hop on to technology or, or use technology, in a way, society does a calculation of when is it good to use or when, like, what is the threshold of efficiency? Like, who will it benefit? If it benefits a certain amount, then we sort of, we start using it. But what isn't put into that calculation is sort of the equity and justice lens. Like oftentimes the amount that it benefits really only only benefit those who have already been privileged. And I think if we flip that and think of, will this benefit those who have been most marginalized, then I think efficiency no longer becomes the priority. It becomes more justice and more equity and more um, sort of flipping the script. Um, and that will take more work and that will take more thought and that will take more time. So it's like all these calculations that we do with facial recognition technology. But I, I guess like a part of my story was sparked by the bar exam and sparked by how a lot of my friends were just nervous to take it. And it made me think as well that the bar exam itself um, has a lot of problematic values to it. Um, and I think it was all of that combined into Melanie just not being recognized as a human in the story. Yeah, that I mean, that imagery to me was quite clear. But specifically with the bar exam, you know, so your short story takes place several years in the future. And it refers to the bar exam being online and remote since the COVID pandemic, which, you know, we're all currently living through right now. And in particular, it seemed to me that the narrative device of facial recognition software not recognizing people of color was an analogy for how an online remote bar exam might disproportionately impact law students of color. Are you concerned about the bar exam being held remotely? And if so, do you think that law students of color will be disproportionately impacted by that? Oh, absolutely. I think the remote aspect of of the bar exam, even peeling back some levels of the onion, I guess, (laughs) of this analogy, it brings me back to what I talked about before, about like access, um, access to justice, but just general access. And something that we don't 
we often don't talk about is class um, within law school as well. Um, to be able to take the bar exam, you need a computer. Um, you need high-speed internet. You need a space that's away from, from noise and from away from distractions. And those are just like the basic necessities. And then you need to be able, like studying for the bar exam, that's two months straight. How are you gonna financially take care of yourself? How are you gonna feed yourself? Do you have other obligations? Do you have families to take care of? And I think, I think those were the conversations that started to bubble up when, um, when there was questions about diploma privilege and whether the class of 2020 should be getting diploma privilege, especially having the distraction of a lot of law students who really care about justice wanted to be out in the streets protesting or or having their voice heard. So me seeing that, it was very hard for me to see my friends go through that. It made me think a lot about the bar exam in general and what its, what its use is. I mean, I genuinely do think that those who become lawyers should know legal concepts, but whether or not that's measured by a two-day exam that you cram study for, or is it through interning with with someone and really learning skills, or is it through is it through other ways that feel more equitable? Because yeah, I it makes me think. If, and again, pulling back more and more of that onion, like who is allowed to be a lawyer? Like who even gets to law school? It just it just the more you peel it back, the more you realize how how hard it is to jump through all of these hoops um, and how it can be easier for people with more privileges. And we see that kind of reflected in, in the demographic makeup of, of lawyers and who gets to be a lawyer. And one thing that came up in your story was, was the use of artificial intelligence to determine sentences for both misdemeanors and felonies. Is this something that you think could actually happen in real life? I... I think we're on the track of it potentially happening in, in real life. I think there's a lot of data out there based on different judges and how judges have leaned on in, in certain scenarios and certain cases. And I think, I think a year ago, it's really hard to tell with COVID, but, um, I did a research, uh, assignment on like what different legal technologies firms are using. Um, and this is something that is being developed. It's, it's sort of predictive analysis of certain judges and certain courts and how they would lean one way or another. Um, and I think, I think it's, I mean, honestly, it's not even a fair that I have, like that will happen. I, I think it is happening now. I think, I think there is a way of using data, but maybe my, my story obviously takes it into an extreme, extreme level of judges being like, this is our system that we're using. It's not being checked. That's it. But I think currently there's a lot of predictive AI tools being used in different legal spheres that could turn into this. Yeah, one of the things that your story made me think of was um, a system that, at least at the time that I was practicing in this jurisdiction, was in place, and and it was basically a uh, it was basically a framework for assessing pretrial conditions of release. So a way to assess essentially how much risk any individual defendant posed, you know, what was the risk, for example, that they would fail to appear? You know, in other words, trying to help judges figure out how to set conditions of release prior to trial. And one of the reasons they instituted that framework was in part to help avoid bias that may or may not come up in setting those conditions, particularly uh, bond amounts. So your story did make me think of that. 
and how that, at least certain jurisdictions that have that kind of framework in place, how that's working out right now in the criminal justice system. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example because I think at the end of the day, what data is being fed, like maybe that algorithm could work if it's not race-based or if it's not class-based, but then if it is, it's, it's, we're also asking the question of why, like, why, why are those the demo? Like, I think I keep going back to the story, but I felt myself in that voice of Melanie being like, which demographics or what data are you using? And I think it speaks to a bigger issue of, at that point, it's not the fact of whether it's biased or not. It's, it is biased because that data is being used and it, whether it comes from an AI tool or a judge, it's still taking in that data and is an effect of, of those types of situations. And I think Goodness, yeah. I, I I genuinely wonder like what five years like courtrooms will look like or what decisions will look like in five or ten years, just because in a way the pandemic has has skyrocketed a lot of like technological innovations and made us all really think of like how to use technology in a in a thoughtful way, but also how to use technology in a quick way. And I I do wonder kind of going back to what I had said before of whether we should be prioritizing efficiency in this technological use or justice. So if it's potentially problematic to kind of utilize predictive AI in certain types of decision-making that occur in the practice of law, or in this case, you know, in the criminal justice system, but it's also problematic to have, you know, a real human being with all of our own biases, you know, coming with us, right? Some of which we know about and some of which we do not. If that's also problematic, what's the pathway forward? Is it some kind of mixture of both of those things? Is it just not utilizing predictive AI at all? Like, how do we chart a path moving forward? I love this question. I think this goes sort of back into the idea of fast versus thoughtful. I think the way that I see it is definitely within this thoughtful bucket where we work on both, right? We work on the in-person biases. We work on checking them where, where I think, to be honest, we're in a place now where these conversations are being had in spaces that they weren't had five years ago. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. So I think we do the work within ourselves, within our communities, within the people we talk to, our families, our, our coworkers. And then we do the work in the programming. We, I think we're at the space too where we can, as long as the programs are coded to check for biases or to have multiple checks within the algorithms, I know that there, there are scholars out there. I'm trying to think, I, there was Algorithms of Oppression, I think by Ruha Benjamin also, I think was a book that I read that really stood out to me. But there are people who've done the work too there that check for biases within algorithms and making sure that those voices are heard in those spaces. So I see it as as two things simultaneously. It might take longer than just utilizing what we have and just utilizing the systems as we have it. But I do think that thoughtfulness and those checks within both our human and predictive AI systems would bear the most benefit. Well, that is a fascinating topic. I'm personally going to check out the book that you just referenced because I am I'm really interested in this. Hema, it's just it's just been a really wonderful conversation to have with you. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us to talk about your short story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. 
This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Thank you to Hima Lochin for her reading and her interview. To close our show, we now hear from Matthew Curvis with his Financial Wellness Minute. Here's Matthew. Thanks, Sonia. Just like most of these Financial Wellness Minutes, following this one is going to be painstaking, but well worth it. This one is about tracking all of the personal property that you own. Yes, you heard me right. Let's do this. When it comes to personal property insurance, maybe you're overinsured, maybe you're underinsured. How do you know if you don't know what stuff you have, how much it's worth, and when you purchased it? Whether it's renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance, you should have some kind of insurance to cover your personal property should a loss occur, like a fire, flood, or theft. As to what is actually covered in the event of a loss, make sure to read your policy and talk to your insurance agent. Regarding everything I'm about to say, be sure to talk to your insurance company about what they prefer to see when it comes to personal property lists. Things you are going to want to track include the date you purchased the item, the amount you paid, the company that made the item, the name of the item, and a hyperlink to the item. You should also make categories based on the kinds of things you own, such as clothes, shoes, electronics, kitchen, art, and so on. Step one, start recording in a spreadsheet all of your personal property purchases starting now and moving forward. If you receive personal property as a gift, then record that too. Scan and save your receipt or proof of purchase. Having a brand or marketplace loyalty will make it easier to track since you can go into your account and look at your previous orders and for proof of purchase. Step two, inventory everything you own. You don't have to do this all at once, and depending on where you are in your life, that will be impossible. But set aside at least one day a month to start going through your belongings and recording it in the spreadsheet. This will take a lot of time, so make sure to do this methodically as to recall where you left off during your prior inventory. Set a calendar reminder to review your list several times throughout the year to audit it for items that you no longer own. If you have a partner or kids who are making purchases, doing this financial wellness exercise correctly means having complete transparency with purchases in the family unit too. The timing of making this list matters. If you make a personal property list and suffer a loss soon thereafter, that will probably raise some red flags with your insurance adjuster. If you've been maintaining a property list for years, then it's more helpful than glaring should you suffer a loss. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABA YLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Back to you, Sonia. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. 
This episode was written and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edit and mix by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Hema Lochin for sharing her story with us and Matthew Kerbis for his Financial Wellness Minute. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.